Onward to Victory is proud to team up with WCScreens.com, where you can get custom screen printing and embroidery at wholesale prices. As reliable as the old button hook route, WCScreens.com ships nationwide, and you can save you or your company money. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Episode number 50. Appropriately, we're going to travel back 50 years ago to an incredibly memorable, though somewhat overlooked, Notre Dame game. A game whose outcome hinged on a bold coaching move, paired with a cunning trick play. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to this special 50th installment of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I'm the host and creator of this humble enterprise, and thank you so much for spending some time with me here today, wherever you may be joining from, whether it be one of the 48 states or over two dozen countries who have unified in their love of the fighting Irish and have tuned into this very show. Today, like most every other day, I'm incredibly appreciative to each and every one of you. And I'm not quite sure when I started this thing back in June of 2019 if I envisioned making it this far, but I sure am glad to have you all along with me. The show continues to grow, and I thank you all. But I guess I'll wait until episode 100 for the big celebration. But today, I have a story for you that is wildly appropriate on multiple fronts. First, to ring in the 50th episode, we're going to travel back exactly 50 years. Second, we're going to focus in on, drumroll please, the 1971 Purdue game. And Purdue just happens to be our opponent this week. Wow, talk about some serious serendipity. I'll detail the origins, history, and some other tidbits of the Notre Dame-Purdue rivalry as a bonus. But before I launch into this thing, uh, let me take a quick spell here to say thank you to some very important people, the Consensus All-Americans, those individuals who financially sponsor the show and keep me on the air. I can't stress enough just how critical these folks are to the survival and continued growth of the show. These people include my friend Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, no doubt the longest standing and most ardent supporter of the show. Thank you, Michael. Next up is my pal from our part of the state, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. Brad's the man, and I seriously don't think I know a bigger Irish fan than he is. And finally, a returner to the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans, my very own brother, Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Weston's home is about to increase by one Notre Dame fan here in the coming months, so congrats to him and his growing family. Thank you all for the support, and if you're curious on how to support the show, stick around to show wrap and I'll tell you all about it. Finally, thank you to our 2021 season sponsor, WCScreens.com, the gold standard of the screen printing and embroidery industry. Make sure you visit my pal Tony and the rest of his team for all your needs at WCScreens.com. 
Mercy. Did you know Notre Dame and Purdue first squared off way back in 1896? That was way back when Frank E. Herring was the head coach of the Irish football team. And there will be a special on this guy at some point. Not only did he coach football early on at Notre Dame, but he was also Notre Dame's first basketball coach and first baseball coach. But somehow he may be more famous for something that has nothing to do with Notre Dame. And I'll leave it right there for a future episode. Anyway, Herring's boys lost that first game in 1896 by a 28-22 score. After a tie in 1899, Notre Dame, led by show favorite fullback Lewis Red Salmon, defeated the Boilermakers in 1901 by a 12-6 tally. So here's the thing I want to point out quickly here, gang. Even though they would become in-state rivals on the gridiron, there was always a mutual respect between the two programs. Now let me expound on that here just a bit. When the Notre Dame train arrived in West Lafayette for their 1902 game, Purdue fans congregated en masse at the station to actually warmly greet the team. And not to mention, they wanted to get a closer look at Salmon, whom they called the Red Top Terror. Many people don't know or haven't heard this, but the following year, on Halloween 1903, before Purdue and Notre Dame were slated to play that year, the train that was carrying Purdue's football team crashed into another train in Indianapolis. The collision actually killed 17 people, including 14 Purdue football players. Absolutely catastrophic. In response, Notre Dame president at the time, Father Andrew Morrissey, messaged the Purdue president to send his condolences. However, according to the school newspaper, it was Irish football captain Lewis Red Salmon who immediately sent perhaps the first telegram to West Lafayette, expressing his and the rest of the team's sympathies for the tragedy. You know, I don't think a lot of folks know that story, as sad as it is. So after uh, another tie in 1902, again the 1903 game was canceled due to the train crash. Purdue actually scored victories in 1904 and 5, but it was after that that the Irish really took this thing over winning 17 of the next 19 contests, which took the rivalry through 1950. But when did the game become the quote-unquote rivalry that we kind of know today? Let me point to two years here real quickly. The first is 1946. Just after World War II, actually, that was the year that Notre Dame and Purdue began to play annually. That, of course, lasted until 2014. The Irish Boilermaker rivalry was actually a victim of Notre Dame joining the ACC for all sports but football and hockey during the 2013-2014 season. This is, of course, because as we probably know, the football team has to schedule a set amount of ACC teams per year as part of the deal, but Purdue was a casualty of this. So yes, 2021 marks the first time Purdue and Notre Dame have played since 2014. So again, 1946 through 2014, that football game happened every season. The second year I want to bring up is 1957. That is when Irish fan Joe McLaughlin, who was a merchant fisherman, presented Notre Dame with a shillelagh club that he had acquired in Ireland. 
the club was affixed to a trophy, and alas, Notre Dame and Purdue's game was soon called the Battle for the Shillelagh. Not for nothing, Notre Dame won the game back in 2014, so the program has been in possession of the trophy for the past seven years. 14, if you count the last time Purdue beat Notre Dame back in 2007. Take you all the way back to the Charlie Weiss era. All told, though, Notre Dame leads the rivalry 58, 26, and 2. So 58 wins, 26 losses, and 2 ties. The NCAA will, of course, tell you that the record is actually 56, 26, and 2. Since, as many of you may be aware, the 2012 and 2013 wins against Purdue were vacated. As I have a few times in the past, I'm here to remind you that the NCAA vacating wins is very arbitrary and incredibly stupid. Vacating wins irritates fans, flusters the game's statisticians, and of course it doesn't change the fact that the contest actually happened. So for the purposes of this show, we are going to go with 58, 26, and 2. I'm sure you don't mind. So for today, I want to hone in on the Battle of the Shillelagh game that happened in 1971, exactly 50 years ago this season. September 25th, 1971 to be exact. So let's dive in. Your fighting Irish that season were coached by the legendary era Parsegian, who was in his eighth season at the helm of the program and just a few seasons removed from Notre Dame's, at the time, most recent national championship in 1966. The expectations were always high for Era's Irish, and though the program hadn't staked a national championship at the time since 1966, they always seemed to be in the discussion. Shown as Era's Irish teams in the meantime never lost more than two games in a season between 1967 and 1970. But heading into the 1971 campaign, the biggest question mark around the program was who in the hell was going to replace quarterback Joe Theismann under center? Theismann, which is actually, in truth, pronounced Theismann, but the All-American made a run at the 1970 Heisman Trophy, which is why the pronunciation of his last name was changed. Kind of a marketing move to rhyme with Heisman. The changing of Theismann's name to Theismann is something I've read several times over the years, but honestly, one of those things I completely forgot until I was preparing for this episode. But anyways... Theismann actually finished second in the Heisman race to Jim Plunkett of Stanford before moving on to the NFL. But seriously, who was going to replace Theismann? Well, ERA had three options, and all three would see significant time during the season. First up, there was senior Pat Steenberg, who it was believed had bided enough time behind Theismann to have a strong grasp of the offense, really know the ropes, and it was kind of believed that he would probably win the job. But nipping at his heels was junior Bill Etter, who had actually seen quite a bit of action in previous seasons. In fact, he set the single-game rushing record for a quarterback in 1969 against Navy with 146 yards. So that's quite something. And finally, there was also a sophomore, the late Cliff Brown. Brown would eventually become the first black quarterback to start a game for the Irish later that 1971 season. I think Brown is a largely forgotten trailblazer in program history, and maybe we will discuss him in depth another day soon. 
Anyway, it was announced shortly after training camp that Era chose the senior, Pat Steenberge, to replace Joe Theismann as the Fighting Irish's starting quarterback heading into the 1971 campaign. So how about some other familiar names? So the Irish defensive line this year featured some serious wreckers. And they were led by defensive end and future number one overall pick, Walt Potolsky. Future pros Fred Swenson and Mike Zekas and Mike Kadish were strewn across the line as well. This is a stout front four. Future All-American Clarence Ellis actually held down the defensive backfield. On offense, the late Bob Minix and the late Larry Parker mostly held down the running back spots. Of note, Parker went to Elder High School in Cincinnati and was reputedly one of the first black students to attend the historically and predominantly white school. Tom Gatewood, who was Theismann's favorite target the year before with 77 catches, an astronomical number at the time, and who would leave Notre Dame with more catches than anyone ever in his still fifth in program history, would take down that number one wide receiver spot. So with a preseason number two ranking according to the Associated Press heading into the 1971 season, the team absolutely blew their week one opponent, Northwestern, out of the water at home in a 50-7 contest on September 18th. They sported a 30-7 lead at the half, and spurred by two second-half pick-sixes put the Wildcats to bed fairly quickly and easily. So next was Purdue at Ross-Aid Stadium in West Lafayette, Indiana on September 25th. It was mentioned in the papers that the Boilermakers still soar over a 48-0 thrashing in South Bend in 1970, had just a little bit of extra juice heading into the game. So extra juice or not, the game's biggest deciding factor would be introduced early and often, one might say relentlessly, that Saturday. And that was rain. By the absolute buckets, rain. Starting at 4 a.m. the day of the game, the precipitation was, again, absolutely unrelenting. The field was absolutely drenched. So much so that every step taken by the players during warm-ups produced small splashes of water around their spikes. Now, I'm not going to lie. I played football for a really long time, and I can see why offensive linemen really seem to like playing in the rain. It tends to eliminate the defensive line and linebacker's speed and agility advantage. That being said, I played defensive line, and I didn't really ever care for the sloppy conditions. And make no mistake, it wasn't that the field was saturated before the game. Ross Aid was absolutely getting pelted with rain during the entire game as well. In some areas of the field, you could hardly see the numbers, the hash marks, everything. I mean, it was an absolute mess. I hope you're getting the picture. And honestly, if you're on the field, you couldn't even see the crowd, which was a then record of 69,765 people because it was a literal sea of umbrellas. Either way, it became clear early on in the football game that they were going to play a different kind of contest. The rain absolutely seemed to neutralize any and all of Notre Dame's talent advantage. While Purdue realized they couldn't run very effectively on that stout front four of the Irish, 
Boilermaker quarterback Gary Danielson found that he could overcome a wet and slippery football by finding his receivers on quick outs or hook routes. He would actually complete 12 of 24 passes for 138 yards. Not bad for a game played in those conditions. Irish quarterback Steenberg could not find the same success. He completed only 7 of 26 passes for only 105 yards. The Irish's issue was, well, they really couldn't run the ball either. They rushed 47 times, 47 times for only 114 yards. A measly 2.4 yards per carry. It didn't help that they were also leaving some points on the field. They tried two field goal attempts and missed both. One was a bad snap. That's a spoiler alert here in a moment. The other was kicked wide right. So Purdue finally broke the scoreless tie when their quarterback Danielson faked a dive to the fullback and found his running back, Otis Armstrong, kind of out in the flat on a screen pass. Armstrong then took the ball 26 yards to the house just before the half. After a successful point after attempt, the score stood 7-0 Boilermakers heading into the locker room. At halftime, the Notre Dame Review later noted that the rain had finally stopped, which cued the Purdue Band to take the field for the halftime show. The performance was allegedly pretty spirited, and right after they left the field, the rain immediately began to fall again in buckets. Because, of course, that is the kind of game we were going to play. Worth noting as well, this game featured 21 punts. <laughs> That's a lot. Uh, needless to say, the average punts per game these days between both teams tends to hover around the 10-11 mark. 12 punts is actually kind of on the high end. But 21 punts. Mercy. So after the third quarter... The score still stood 7-0 Purdue. It just did not look like anything was going to give in the unrelenting weather and crummy field conditions. Later, Steenberg called every single play of the game a, quote, mosh pit of mud. That creates quite an indelible image. But suddenly, with about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, the Irish offense finally mounted up and came alive. So they got some help, too. They were aided by a shanked 18-yard punt, which gave them excellent position, actually, on Purdue's side of the football field. And so Steenberg drove the offense all the way down to Purdue's five-yard line. This was Notre Dame's big chance to finally make this thing a ball game. Boy, it's raining so hard now, you can hardly even see. The television commentator shared with those watching at home. Unfortunately, his words proved prophetic. As Steenberg took the next snap, the slippery ball popped straight into the air and fell to the wet grass. In a mad scrum for the loose ball, it was corralled by a Purdue safety. Boilermaker's ball with about four minutes left in the game. The scoring drive stalled by a turnover. The crowd went absolutely wild. 
and the Purdue defense celebrated like the game was over. And hell, it probably felt like it was. This would have been a monumental upset, storm the field kind of game with a victory over the number two team in the country. And actually, frankly, Notre Dame was number one in a number of polls. The Associated Press actually just had them at number two. But for the Irish, a national championship season must have felt like it was slipping right through their fingers in the same way that ball just slipped right through the fingers of their quarterback, Steamburge. So the Irish defense, fortunately stout essentially all day, held firm. And the Boilermakers lined up to punt after only yielding about six yards the previous three plays. So with the ball now on the, let's say, 13-yard line, Purdue punter Scott Lockneed readied himself from his own end zone. After shanking the previous punt and now standing in his own end zone, I bet that was probably pretty unnerving. If we have any former punters in the audience, I'm sure you can attest. I've never punted a ball, and that's for good design. I am terrible at it. But with exactly 2 minutes and 58 seconds left on the clock, the Purdue long snapper shot the snap through his legs to Lockneed. Again, perhaps due to the wet, slippery ball, the snap was short, and it one-hopped Lockneed. And just as he was trying to collect it on the hop, he bobbled it. But screaming off the defensive right edge was the fearsome Walt Potolsky. Lockneed was just gathering the ball as Potolsky crashed into him, and the ball went loose once again. Fellow defensive end Fred Swenson fell on the ball then for an Irish touchdown in the end zone. What in the world? 7-6 Purdue. Now, Coach Parsegian did not want to go for a tie and overtime. Man, he wanted a win. He called for the offense to take the field and run a daring two-point conversion play they had practiced all week. It was later called the genuflect play. All right, now follow me here for a little bit of chalk talk. Some of you may really enjoy this, and I'll try to make it as simple and straightforward as I can. The Irish came out with a two-tight-end front with a wishbone backfield. So Steenberg is under center, and be mindful too here, he literally fumbled the previous snap he took. Directly behind him was the fullback, and then directly behind the fullback were split halfbacks. So again, picture it, two tight ends and three running backs. So this was a variation of the wishbone offense that didn't have any wide receivers. So if you're looking at the formation, you're probably looking, or thinking at least, heavy run. Okay, so the play was what we may refer to now as a play-action pass. Steenberg was to fake the handoff to one of the fullbacks, and all the offensive movement, including the offensive lineman, was going right. Okay? Heading to the right. It was designed this way to get the defense moving that way because the quarterback's going to fake the handoff and make it look kind of like an off-tackle right, and he's going to turn his back to the defense for a split second to sell the fake, and with all the movement heading right, hopefully including the defense, he will then look and pass left. So while all this movement right is happening, the left tight end, Mike Craney, was to fake a cut block, go down to a knee, 
just like he was genuflecting in church before entering his pew. So he would sell the fake, pop up, run a little corner out where Steenberg was expected to throw him the ball. Easy peasy, right? That's the genuflect play. So Steenberg receives the snap and fakes the handoff. It is seven to six. They are going for two points to win the football game. So all the offensive movement heads right, including all three of his running backs. So Steenberg turns his back for a split second, tries to conceal the ball, and then turns to look left. Two Purdue defenders are absolutely, unequivocally not buying the fake. Not for one second. And they are barreling down on him. Whereas the fake handoff didn't fool them, Craney's fake block slash genuflect move absolutely did. Just before Steenberg got flattened into the grass, and he absolutely did, even getting his jersey ripped off of him, he got tackled so hard. He heaved a desperation toss over the two defenders and into the air, into the general vicinity which he hoped Mike Craney would be. That ball sailed, stuck in the air, and fell right into the arms of a wide-open Craney. Two-point conversion is good. 8-7 Irish. Again, what in the world? Folks, it is on YouTube, so please feel free to check it out. It's totally there for public consumption. It's a, it is a dandy. So the Irish defense held firm, and the 8-7 mark would be the final score. One Irish fan was noted saying, no one could beat us today. That old Notre Dame charisma came through again. The luck of the Irish still lives. Though the Irish wouldn't win era another national title, at least not in 1971, an 8-2 record did net them a top 13 spot at the end of the season. So perhaps it was the luck of the Irish, perhaps not, depending on whether you believe such things. But... Let's not forget our long-storied rivalry with Purdue and the gutsy call, the genuflect play, which propelled the Irish to an improbable victory, allowing them to retain the Shillelagh Trophy 50 years ago this season. And I'll be right back. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one as immensely as I enjoyed putting it together. I wanted episode number 50 to be special, so not only do I feel like this story is worth the retell, but it couldn't have been a more appropriate time with it being the 50th anniversary of the game, the very week of the Purdue game to boot. So I really do hope you enjoyed it sincerely. And I am sorry to have to share some sad news, as it were, but some news did come across the wire as I was writing and kind of producing this episode, and that's that former Irish halfback from 1945 through 1948 and former Irish head football coach from 1954 through 1958, Terry Brennan has died at the age of 93. So some of you may know Terry Brennan. He accumulated a 32-18 and record as Frank Leahy's successor. When you really think about it, being the successor to Frank Leahy was 
probably a fairly unenviable position. However, not only was he Frank Leahy's successor, but he was Frank Leahy's successor at 25 years old. Yes, folks, he was kind of the boy coach, if you will. He took over the reins as the head football coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish at age 25. In fact, he was asked once uh, before the first his first season there if he thought he was too young to be the head coach, and he replied, and I quote, Oh, I don't know. I'll be 26 in a few months, end quote. <laughs> really awesome. And though his record didn't match Leahy's, he did orchestrate one of the Irish's more memorable wins in program history, which was a 1957 victory over Oklahoma, which snapped the Sooners' then 47 game winning streak so our thoughts are with coach Brennan's family and you know fortunately he did have the opportunity to live a long life but we'll always remember coach Terry Brennan on a different note I am personally excited as I will be taking in the Notre Dame Toledo game the home opener on September 11th with my wife eight-year-old son and younger brother Though by the time this episode is released, that game will have already passed, so please check out the Facebook page. I will be sharing some of the action from that game for all of you to enjoy and pictures from around campus and all that. I'll give you the Facebook page's uh, URL here in a minute. But again, I want to thank WCScreens.com for sponsoring the show for the season. Please visit the website, again, WCScreens.com, to see everything they have to offer in screen printing and embroidery and how they can get you, your company, your gathering, whatever it may be, outfitted properly and saving money. Also, a warm and special thank you again to the Consensus All-Americans, Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, if you're interested in becoming a Consensus All-American yourself, please visit paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or head over to patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for options with uh, ongoing monthly support. Please know how much it is appreciated, particularly again as the show has officially crossed episode number 50. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show, however it is that you listen. If you have an iPhone in your hand right now, please make sure you subscribe. Hit that purple podcast icon and then subscribe, of course, and you'll be alerted to all the new episodes. And if you find it in your heart, please rate the podcast as a five-star podcast on Apple Podcasts. It may seem insignificant, but I believe it helps the show be found when people search the uh, for Notre Dame content and such over the vastness of the internet. Be sure to jump over to the Facebook page again for updates as well. That is facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast. And if you like to send good old-fashioned emails, well, the show does that too. Please uh, feel free to send any correspondence to onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com, and I will read anything and everything on the air for a future episode. Any message that you'd like. I just would really appreciate hearing from you. So, Also, finally, thank you to my pal Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockne, serves as the theme song for this show. You can find it on... Apple Music, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, however it is you digest music. Again, Joseph Rakish, Knut Rockney. That is the theme song, folks. Make sure you check it out. Give it a few spins. And with that, fellow sons and daughters of Aaron, I had better sign off. I hope you enjoyed this again. Very special 50th episode in show history. 
This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) 